Hello and welcome to Geeks with Shields, your home for all things good and nerdy in this The Darkest Timeline. I'm Lord Commander Ulrich and with me as always, his shield brother, Axel Wright. How's it going today, Axel? You know, that's actually a very interesting question. I was thinking about it before we start recording. Now, if there's anyone that actually cares, I'd actually want to know. But normally when I listen to people online, uh, you know, like the various podcasts and YouTube shows I listen to, the most important thing to me is sincerity. Like I care about, you know, people who seem to be putting on themselves. The more of an act it feels like, the more disconnected I feel and the less interested I am, right? So if I'm going to sit here and I'm feeling positively infuriated by events that have nothing to do with this podcast, but I want to be sincere. So I want to just put on a big fake happy smile and, and sound like a total sham. So I'll try to cut a middle ground, but I'm curious if, uh, if any fan, you know, has a an input on that, like how, how honest and sincere with, if I'm feeling this way, should I be in the future? <laughs> See, what happened, listeners, is some kids broke into Axel's house and stole his pot of gold. He's a very angry leprechaun today. If that's what you want to take away from that, you go ahead. I always err on the side of humor. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Anyway, what are we talking well, about? Well, well, actually, yeah. first, we got a Patreon thing to do, right? Go go for it. Yes. All right. Um, we start every episode the same way by thanking our patrons for their ongoing support. They are Pam Galley, Marky, Orion McCann, Chris Chipman, and River Galley. Now, thanks to our patrons, we are full-time, all ahead, whatever you want to call it, on SoundCloud. So, our next big goal, get on more places, do more things, buy better equipment. And to do that, we need your help. Now, if you like the show, you like listening to us, you like us, you got 25 cents lying around, I know you do. Why not give it to us? Because that's how much... It costs per episode, 25 cents. And you would not believe how far it goes in regards of helping us make this thing week to week. So head on over to patreon.com forward slash geeks with shields. Works for me. All right, let's go ahead and jump right in into this. Uh, this is an episode I've been looking forward to since we started the podcast. Well, it involves a topic that is near and dear to both of us. I think it's fair to say it's one of our favorite books. Like, it's easily in my top five. It's my favorite book. All right. Uh, for those of you who haven't been able to figure this out, we're talking Emil Gaiman's American Gods. The book, the first season, and the first episode of season two. So, as a quick, uh, what, what, did, what did Chris call it? A Reader's Digest uh, sampling? Amer Neil Gaiman, right? He's a pretty well-known author at this point. He's done a bunch of great things like, you know, the Sandman comics, a bunch of great books, including this one, a bunch of good episodes of Doctor Who and various other kinds of shows. Pretty no well-known guy. Uh, Coraline. A bunch of comics. Yeah, yeah. So American Gods is ostensibly a story about mythology in America. Uh, and how America's relationship to gods and whatnot is, but it's done through a fiction. Like it's a complete fictional story. Well, laced with some kind of historical stuff that's very loosely. Anyway, the, All the locations are also real too. That's kind of a cool thing to know. Yeah. The basic premise, right. Is that in, in his, in this book's reality, gods don't create people. 
people create gods through the act of believing in them. Faith is a a powerful thing, and if enough people believe some believe in something, that that entity comes into being. It isn't an existing thing that then feeds off of faith. So because of that, all the gods who've ever existed still do. But there are also new gods that even if people don't have names for them. You know, people worship at the altar of the television, essentially. So there's a god for media, stuff like that. And American Gods is about how the old gods and the new gods relate to each other, to put it. Let's, let's put it bluntly. They're gearing up for war because they believe there's only enough faith for, you know, one party over the other. And all and this I, lands on I, the I, shoulders. Yeah. It all lands on the shoulders of one guy named Shadow Moon, who is ambiguously American, and how he relates in interesting ways to the various gods, but he's like the important puzzle piece and the lens through which the you know reader takes trips through. Because the book is split up into three different sections, essentially. The first section is the, what I just described, old gods, new gods, Shadow. The second section is there's a big chunk of the book where Shadow just chills in this town this pretty small it's supposed to be basically the idyllic american kind of rustic town right yeah yeah and so it's just kind of that those sections of the book are largely a commentary on you know what that means but anyway and then the third part of the book is a god an egyptian god to be specific who is writing uh, books, novels. It's um, is it Ibis or is it Thoth? I don't remember. It's Thoth. Right, he's anyway. the god of thought, right, and memory and all that. I'm rusty on my Egyptian pantheon. But... Yeah, and I haven't made it to my yearly reread of this book yet. Oh, it's Mister Ibis. Yeah, thank you. So it is Ibis. So Ibis is writing stories from Americans' past, but it's like stories about the immigrants who came to America at various points in time and the mythologies, religions, and beliefs they brought with them. So there'll be a chapter that has nothing to do with Shadow or the the New Gods, but it's just some immigrant's story, you know? Yeah, it's a great little part. I mean, you've got one about this girl coming over from Ireland and how she brought, you know, the story of the fairies. You've got the story of the Vikings coming to America. You've got an interesting pay, uh, story about a cab driver in America. Um, it just kind of sprinkles in, and it's a fun little context. Yeah, so this is the basic structure of American Gods. And because that structure is three-pronged, right, there are some book reviewers. If, if, by the way, if any of this sounds interesting to you, then I highly recommend reading. Like I said, it's my favorite book. It, not only is it my favorite fiction, but it also actually redefined, reshaped my entire ideology and philosophy. I don't think Neil Gaiman necessarily intended that. It's a kind of, I think, just a fun book where he gets to explore interesting locations and ideas. But point is, if New Gods, Old Gods, some American history, guy who wrote like Coraline and shit, um, he did write Coraline, right? Yeah, he wrote Coraline. Anyway, if all that like sets off at least one geek switch in your brain, whether it's the historian geek switch, a, uh, like a mythology geek switch, a I dislike neat stuff Neil Gaiman's done geek switch, go give the book a read and then come back and listen to this because 
there are a few things I want to talk about that are going to spoil the hell out of the story. So I'm going to put the flag down right now that I, I see this in videos all the time that like, oh, you know, spoiler. So and just big neon letters. Spoiler alert. I really think this story is good and that at least one spoiler I want to talk about, I didn't see coming, even though I should have. And I don't want to, you know, I want you to go in blind. So go enjoy it. I was going to try and keep it as spoiler-free as possible, but I will oh, work around it because we're going to talk all about season one. I mean, it's been over two years now, I think, since season one came out. We're going to talk about that. Uh, we'll talk about the book, and we'll talk about, you know, the first episode of season two. Um, I guess first we'll go into how were you introduced to the book? You. Oh, yeah, fair enough. Um, so I guess I should talk about how I was introduced to the book. Um... I was introduced to the book shortly after it came out and I had really gotten into the whole Norse pantheon, uh, Viking mythology, all that great stuff. And a friend of mine said, Hey, if you like that, you should read this book, you know, American gods. And I'm like, Oh, okay. I read it and just immediately was absorbed by how awesome this book was. And Neil Gaiman, I read it, I think in like a course of a month and a half that I was burning through it. Um, and I immediately just started reading everything else he wrote. I'm still a huge fan of Anansi Boys, which is kind of a pseudo-sequel to this. So, again, there. remember how the concept is that there are old gods and new gods? Well, one of the old gods that features prominently in American gods is Anansi, the African spider god of stories, who's a trickster god and very important to African mythology and the pantheon in general. So, Anansi Boys is a story about his two demigod sons kind of and one of them is more so than the other yeah but it follows See, i think neil gaiman's came out and said it both is the same anansi and it's a different anansi it all depends on how you want to interpret it well that's another thing that is important when it comes to american gods is this concept of remember how i said that people create gods through their faith well Different people believing in the same thing, but differently create different versions of the same thing. So for the most blunt example, and the show actually does a really good job of this, there are many different Jesuses. Yeah. I want to talk about, I mean, I know we're kind of going around, but at first I was not, I did not like that, you know, introduction in the episode because Neil Gaiman, you know, one of the questions he asked was, why didn't you put Jesus in the book? And he said, because Mr. Wednesday has nothing to offer Jesus. So when I okay, first saw them, like, You're I don't being... even have that Yeah, yeah, I know. But just, just, so Wednesday is the main god dealing with shadow. That's all you need to know. And his identity is pretty obvious if you know mythology at all, but I'm not going to bring it up. Point is, Jesus isn't in the book because Wednesday is going around collecting the old gods. And Jesus, as far as Neil Gaiman is concerned, is successful. He's so successful, he doesn't have to worry about though this whole faith issue. So he's not in the book. Neither is Allah and neither is uh, Yahweh or Muhammad. You know, the or, big Christ, the big uh, Abrahamic gods don't have anything to worry about from TV and internet. Yeah. But the show manages to work Jesus in because Jesus in the show still has no require, no need for Wednesday's plan. But Easter, who is an old pagan God does. And Jesus happens to hang out with Easter because there are, have become intertwined. They, in the they share a holiday. Uh, just real quick, I want to talk about them. Uh, 
I actually liked it because it was kind of cool to see all the different representations of Jesus. And it's a great way to kind of go, you know, you can have multiple versions of the same God based on how people, you know, interpret them. Yeah. So, so literally in, in that episode and the book does this too, but in different ways, there's like a Jesus of Nazareth. Who's like the original Jesus that, basically existed back you know in the middle east there's a white jesus that is what you know contemporary you know whatever you want to call that version of america i forgot the term is the like that they believe in there's there's black jesus there's korean jesus there's latin jesus like all of these jesuses exist there's commercial jesus who's like a salesman essentially right it's what makes this is what i makes the book so interesting like one of my favorite things when i first read through the book was one just the idea that all these gods exist and this is how they've been americanized and two trying to figure out who these gods are which for the most part the book's pretty obvious there is one god in the book that the book goes to great lengths not to explain who it is. Neil Gaiman himself has refused uh, to reveal who it is, but Ulrich and I have a pretty good idea what God it is. When you wouldn't, yeah, we won't say. I was, th- I was thinking about that the other day. Point point is, there's a chapter about this one God who exists in Las Vegas. He can see it is a he, and he can see how money flows in like uh, not like a web, but in a, like a flow chart essentially. But here's the thing. Any mortal that looks at him, the second they look away, they stop remembering him. They don't remember what he looks like. They don't remember that he exists at all. So like, those are the only clues that we have is that he has something to do with money and that he has something to do with like memory, but anyway, there's a bunch of clues in there. And here's the thing. I figured out who he was a couple of years back, but I don't remember how I did it anymore. I, yeah, I, I still agree with your interpretation. Like once I looked up the God, you thought he is, I, I agree with it, but anyway, we're, yeah, let's, let's, let's focus back. Let's go back and we'll focus on the book and just kind of, you know, maybe talk about the main characters. So and go from there. Yeah. So here, here's another important thing about, the book right shadow who is our pov character we have to we have to like him but in the book he's a lot more of a a cipher he's described as being very shy and very quiet he's contemplative so mostly he's a weak character is not the right word but he's meant to be the only real descriptive about him is he's big he has this don't fuck with me vibe and that's the only real descriptive of him physically you get even though he spent a good chunk of the book inside his head. Yeah, yeah. Which Neil Gaiman, you know, again, kind of his whole writing thing, he's meant to represent, you know, America and Americans. And despite what people believe, it's kind of hard to pin down exactly what Americans are because we're not one ethnicity, that's for sure. We're not one ideology. And I don't know, it's kind of a nice little touch of this ambiguous character that's big. Uh, It represents America because, yeah, it's ambiguous and big. I think that's a great description. Well, it's funny. I remember when the show was coming out before it was cast, me and you talked about it. We both agreed that we had thought of uh, Shadow as being ambiguously Native American. Well, they never say like there's a whole, you know, line because the story starts with Shadow in prison and getting out and finding that his wife has died. He's lost his job. Everything's gone to shit. And there's this kind of tirade when he's talking with this, you know, prison guard trying to figure out what he is. And he goes through all these different, you know, 
slurs. And interestingly enough, a lot of them, you know, just kind of apply to other Caucasian people. And I remember reading that going, man, people are creative in their racism because even if you are the my, a majority race, they still will try and you know, find a racial subdivide for you. Well, my point of bringing it up is that this isn't a book about like it's hard to explain, but you're not going to come to this book for like a heavy character arc on Shadow's part. He he has one, but it functions more like a, a spine for the the book than an actual like you know drawing point. Like Wednesday has more of an interesting lack of an arc, if that makes any sense, than Shadow's actual arc. Like what's going on. That's the meat of what's interesting is mostly the world building the, and the details are what makes it. Yeah. I was thinking there's not a lot like characters don't really change a lot throughout this. Everyone's kind of more or less set in who they are beginning to end. I think, I mean, there's some reveals about certain characters, but I think for the most part, everyone's fairly consistent and you're right. It's more about the world and the journey and that whole thing. And someday I really do want to go on the American Gods road trip. Yeah, they actually there's a, a chapter before the book starts talking about the locations that are described are all like actual locations, but they're described not necessarily in the same place that they actually are relative to each other. Like Neil Gaiman admits he took some liberties for story purposes, but that each place is, if not an exact place that already exists, is basically just a renamed version of a place that already exists. Yeah, like I think people have mapped out a couple different road trips that you can go on, starting from roughly where Shadow is meant to be to roughly where the story ends. And that's kind of my bucket list of things to do someday. Yeah. Anyway, point is that we both love this book. We love the hell out of it, mostly for details and world building. And we've... Uh, Ulrich has stated many times before he's a lore fiend and he loves like world building. So this, this book has that in spades. I'm not nearly as much of a lore fiend. I mostly like the details and the style of writing. Neil Gaiman's writing is crisp. It's, it's snappy. It moves along at a great pace and it's just extremely enjoyable. So it, it's just a, you know, a fun read. It's not that long. I think it's what, like 400 pages or something like that. I think it's closer to 500, but I don't know. I recently picked up the author's preferred text, which has, you know, it's the cut that Neil Gaiman loves most. And I was reading it, you know, last year, because I typically, I reread this book about once a year. And I'm at the point, I have read this book so many times. I know the new stuff that is added in, even if it's only a couple sentences. And that was such a weird point of pride when I'm reading, like, wow. I know what sentences are new. I've read this book so much. Yeah. So we used to, you know, go back and, okay. So real quick, when I say that this book changed my philosophies, my, you're going to, you're going to take a, an interesting little stance here, or not stance, but I'm going to reveal something to myself here, which is my belief system is for, you know, documents and stuff. I'm described as a Germanic neo-pagan because I actually worship, you know, the Norse gods, but that's not actually accurate. It'd be closer to say I'm an omnist. I basically took the ideas in this book and applied and found a actual existing belief system that is structured very similarly because it really spoke to me. And some people might say, that's stupid. How you taking your religion from a fiction book? Like, Hey, so do most religions. You really want to pull that thread? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, point is that i believe that all religions are true 
actually for you essentially and that the act of believing in it is what makes the your afterlife exist so it's not a matter of what religion is correct it's a matter of what religion do you choose and by that set of rules i choose valhalla and cesarum near and the the various viking tenets because they speak to maybe maybe i'm scandinavian but they somewhat and maybe there's an ancestral kind of thing there i don't know but the the tenets of honor and you know discipline and self-improvement like that kind of stuff speaks to me and so that's what i that's what i mean when i say this book affected me in that strong a way yeah no i think i've talked multiple times about my what i call the american gods philosophy american gods theory if you believe it and enough people agree with you it's probably true which again I know it gets complicated and I don't want to break that down, but that's the base philosophy. That's why if anyone ever comes to my door and says, have you found Jesus? I reply with something along the lines of, yes, I did. But then I found Odin and I prefer what he's offering. I always respond with no. Was I supposed to be looking for him? (laughs) I I like the classic meme of, what was it? Like Jesus promised to end all suffering. The Buddha promised to end all corruption. Odin promised to get rid of frost giants. Do you see any frost giants? Yeah, no, okay. So let's just kind of start moving into season one, the whole TV show on stars, which I don't know how popular it is. I'm assuming it's pretty popular. Um, So, yeah, I, when they first announced this, like they announced this forever ago, and it seemed to take forever to get going because originally it was going to be on HBO, then HBO passed or didn't, Neil Gaiman, I don't know, a bunch of weird stuff happened. Then it ended up on stars, casting started coming out. I got excited. I watched the season. I was excited till the end when I wasn't. So I remember thinking that turning into a show is definitely a good idea. Like it's a better, it's certainly better. It's idea, a but dense book for sure. You just, you can't make it a movie. It was never meant to be. Even though I was working on a fan cast in, I had a Google doc fan cast for years where I was slowly piecing it together. And actually it was a couple like uh, Mr. Wednesday. I did cast uh the actor they have playing it now, whose name I can't remember. Yeah, I, I can't think of it either. But he's Shane perfect. something or other. I know that. Yeah, but the oh, point Ian is, McShane. there it Ian is. Ian McShane. Ian McShane. Point is though that Wednesday is a con man. Like whatever other personality traits you ascribe to him, in the book he's described largely as being a a class A grifter, and so an actor who can get that. Basically, he has to come off as confident, charming, and enjoyable. Like, you want to be around him, but at the same time, you don't necessarily trust him. Like, he's a little too comfortable. That's the air Wednesday has to give off, and that actor pulls it off perfectly. Oh, yeah. I was thinking that in just this, you know, first episode of season two, there's a little – he's giving a speech, and it's like he is nailing this portrayal. Like, I – this is Wednesday from the book. Because at first, I was a little bit put off because I envisioned, you know, Wednesday – bit gruffer he's described with a big beard i was kind of bummed he was clean shaven uh but i got past that. see i never imagined him with the the big beard in the book but that might be one of those things where my brain just like look you know went over it or something yeah i think the casting on this pretty much across the board is spot on uh mr nancy is i think a standout like he is just bubbling charisma which that's how uh nancy is supposed to be you know, he's always tricking and manipulating people partially because you kind of want to believe him. You kind of want to be his friend. That is Orlando Jones, by the way, plays Mr. Nancy. That's and the- yes, uh, that's the thing. Nancy is a 
is a storyteller. He's literally the god who invented stories. He weaves tales, right? He's a spider, spider silk weaving tales. You get it. But anyway, he he tells these stories about like he tells this one story in one episode about uh, slaves who came over because that's how they brought the African gods were the slaves who came to America. They're the ones who brought their African gods. But he tells a story about one ship that didn't make it, but got close enough that a Nancy, this version of a Nancy was there um, where like these slaves are praying for a Nancy to come. Anyway, point is he tells this terrible, awful story that doesn't hold back at all about the horrors that were going to happen to these people. And it's really good stuff. Like as far as television is concerned, you know? Yeah, no, that was a great part. And he infuses a little bit of anger into this one, which I find very, uh, Poignant is the word I want, I think, for the yeah, time. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think I'll start talking about the first season. I think the first half of the season was pretty solid. It followed the book. The casting was good. Um, I liked that they introduced Vulcan, who's not in the book, but they kind of, you know, he had gone over to the other side, which was an interesting concept. I thought that, oh, some of the go- old gods are adapting and going over to the other side because now he's like, he's becoming the god of guns. It is funny. The Greek gods, the Hellenistic pantheon, aren't in the book at all. They're referenced kind of with a quote about Albanians and that you have to, you know, you have to pull on some threads to figure out that connection. But they're really not in the book at all. The book mostly is concerned with uh, Egyptian mythology, Slavic mythology, Norse mythology, obviously, um, some Celtic and African. Yeah. There's an Indian one or two thrown in. There's some Chinese ones. It's kind of sprinkled through. But yeah, the Greeks don't get mentioned. But that was when they first, because that was the first episode that it kind of diverted from the book. And I went, all right, let's see where this is going. And then when you know, they revealed Vulcan has re- reforged himself, pun intended, I know, uh, to be the god of guns. is like, one, that is a great commentary. And two, that's kind of an interesting setup, you know, because some of the gods have switched you don't exactly know where everyone's loyalty is going to lie which in the book it wasn't so much the case it was very clearly oh you're an old god okay you're on mr wednesday's side oh you're a new god okay you're on the other side well see that's that's another interesting thing though is that you know the book came out you know over a decade ago right so the book what social commentary it was giving on because it was really not a social commentary book it kind of is it was about modern day people's relationship to their their faiths their religions and their mythology basically oh and of course the relationship to peoples and oh yeah some native american mythology shows up i forgot that's actually very important but anyway not important uh it is important but the show right in order to try to have more commentary that is relevant today like use that that vulcan episode was all about like modern commentary and i thought it worked very well and when the show does start diverting i was cautious at first but i think overall it's a good decision because of the the nature of this story like if they tried to adhere very strictly to the book i think it would be fine but I think that I'd rather them try big and, you know, stumble a bit, you know? Yeah, because let's talk about the second half where this show kind of becomes a bit of a garbage fire to me. I would not say garbage fire by any means. Okay, I'll call it a hot mess because that's what it is. I will I will concede to messy. It is certainly messy. So, so kind of recap where we get is, you know, Mr. Wednesday – 
kills Vulcan after finding out he has betrayed the old gods and kind of goes, you know, this will be a good spark to get everyone going. Then they jump ahead a good chunk in the book to meet up with Easter. And that was the first real casting I wasn't on board with. Well, okay, admittedly, it's funny because the Easter, I imagine the book is a lot more, for lack of a better term, portly. I don't. I imagine her is like... She thick. Yeah, but it's not just a physical. It's just that that kind of conveys... Okay, think about maybe you know, in a D&D campaign or an old fantasy and like a warm, almost motherly tavern woman. You know, like that's a shadow wants to get down. Like there's a couple references that shadow wants. She's beautiful and very alluring and beautiful and very vivacious. Yeah, but she's beautiful in a very specific kind of way in the book. At least that's how I interpret it that the show goes with instead, I think still works. It just works differently because the show goes for, I can't describe any better than like, almost like a soccer mom like a yeah uh, was essentially a high society socialite perfect that's a great example and that was kind of a weird one it's like uh i'm not really sure and i mean i i really i still have mixed feelings about her whole relationship with jesus because in the book she was you know very much saying what do you need? Uh, I don't need anything from you. They still, you know, do eggs and they still feast on my day and they still remember my day. And Mr. Wins is like, do they? Or are they, you know, taking your name and giving you nothing in return? So that was kind of where I was. I'm still on the fence about the whole Jesus thing because the Jesus metaphor was perfect, but it really kind of went against the book for me. I disagree. I think it actually works very well. It just makes it more literalized because the concept in the book is that Easter is happy, but it's a surface level happy because the commercialization of Easter and the commodification of Easter by Christian faith allows her to still be fed essentially, but it's like it's hollow because it's not actually to her. It's just her name. The show basically takes it one step farther by saying that Jesus himself is complicit in it, whether he, you know, is actually the level to which he's the point is that she leans into it because it, she is, it's taking the commercialization. That's what I was trying to get to. Sorry. The commercialization of Easter has been personified into her character in the show. I think to a much better degree. There's that great line when, you know, I don't remember exactly what it is, but Mr. Wednesday, you know, basically says he has stolen your holiday and it cuts to a Jesus. I did. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, exactly. And the idea is that Wednesday has to remind her of the powerful, like, pagan goddess that she's supposed to be, not this, you know, commercial, gentrified vision of Easter that she's become, which I think works very well in in the show. Yeah, I don't know. I'm still kind of on the fence about that one. And then, you know, this is when... And we'll talk about it when we talk about, you know, season two. They jump ahead and they get captured by Mr. World, which I also have, okay. I have big issues with this. Here's one. the big problem with Mr. World. And this is why, again, this is big spoiler territory. I'm going to try to be vague, but this is a big fucking deal. Pardon my French. So in the book, Mr. World is the the leader, essentially, of the new gods. He's kind of represents in the book. It's a lot more vague. He's supposed to represent like the idea that because 
people believe that there must be a cabal or you know government agencies that actually control everything that even though there isn't they believe there is so then there becomes it which is mr world the whole faceless organization the kennedy assassinations like they even joke about the incompetence of the cia because they're beyond the cia it's kind of a cool thing I mean, there's Mr. Town, there's Mr. Wood, there's Mr. Stone. They all got the dumb code names that they make fun of. But, and I, and I, again, I will I'll try to tiptoe around this. It turns out there's something far more interesting and far more devious going on Mr. World specifically. But because of that, Mr. World has to take a very back seat in the book. He, and he spends most of his time not even there. And when he is there, he's more like just a voice, right? But yeah, because it's Mr. World, then Mr. Town, then, you know, the various faceless agents. And I don't know why they didn't do Mr. Town, why they felt the need to jump straight to Mr. World. So instead, in the show, what they've gone with is because in the book, you can't have Mr. World meet Shadow for a very specific reason. You just can't, like, until the very end. It's it's important. So but they want to have these scenes with him in the show. They've changed him almost completely. At least it appears so where he is now the God of globalization. And by that, literally the, you know, taking concepts and basically taking away their ability to be local. He's like, you know, he's the God of, you know, satellites and, and, you know, unions of nations and anything. You that still is, get the government conspiracy, but it kind of becomes more all consuming. Yeah. And, there is still a chance, I think, that they could do with him what they did with the book, but it will have to be. And yeah. I think maybe the reason they didn't do Mr. Town was because they want to do the gotcha bigger than they did in the book. But I don't like the actor. He feels unhinged, which is not how Mr. World should feel. See, I was going to get to that I actually really like the choice of Crispin Glover as the actor because, yes, in the in the book, Mr. World is supposed to be much more composed. But the idea in the book is that that composure is actually hiding a lot more unhingedness beneath the surface. So the choice to cast Crispin Glover, uh, I feel like, is doing almost the reverse, but on screen where we've got a character who is very obviously something is wrong with him. Chris, Crispin Glover's great at giving off this vibe of, I don't like this guy's following me at night and I'm afraid for my life, you know, kind of vibe. And I feel like they're using that to conceal, you know, what's actually going on with him. And I think it works. Personally. I don't know. That's still one of the things I don't like, and it hasn't gotten better with the second see the first episode of the second season. We've only had one episode thus far, at least a time of recording. And it's like, ah, that's not really how I want Mr. World. And I don't really like that they jumped the kidnapping of, you know, Shadow before the uh, House on the Rock. And then season two ends with Shadow getting kidnapped again in the exact well, roughly the same way it was in the book I, I i we'll see where it goes but that felt like a weird choice to me yeah again i i like crispin glover i also really like julian anderson who plays media she is basically perfect is exactly what i imagined my problem is the actor they have playing technology who there's oh, a god that is yeah. that is a uh, technology 
And the the ver- I feel like the version they went with is fine. It's just not nearly as okay. Here, here's the thing: in the book, technology is described very specifically as being like a overweight young teen, like think like a fourteen year old essentially, with who's pimply, but is is dressed in like really fancy clothes. But the kind of fancy clothes that like imagine if you had a fourteen year old billionaire the kind of ridiculous and they were a billionaire in tech right think you know silicon valley shit right they got the ridiculous kind of disco cyber tech matrixy shit they would wear and he wears glass like sunglasses inside and shit and he does the thing where he you know vapes but then when he pushes out the smoke he breathes it in through his nose like a pretension anyway i think they really missed an opportunity with the character design on this one in the show instead they're they have this tall, lanky, almost like I think they were trying to do like a, like a Mark Zuckerbergy, like Jesse Eisenberg is Mark Zuckerberg social network kind of thing. He just looks like a dude. That's the problem. Yeah. There is nothing that makes me think, oh, you're the god of technology. They don't really do anything, which there is so much they could have done. They could have commented on the toxic hellscape that social media is, or because like we know, can both agree. We can both agree that Gillian Anderson's performance as media is basically perfect. Like she does feel like the goddess of media. Oh but, yeah, that perfect smiling yeah. face that hides something sinister. Yeah, but uh, but Bruce Langley, who plays Technical Boy, I, I mean, I'd hope to see him get better. But from what I've seen so far, it's like he doesn't kill it for me. But I just find him like he could be much better. He's it doesn't work for me. Like you said, he doesn't feel like a God and yes, technology is supposed to seem like an impotent kind of pathetic God, but he doesn't even come off like that. He just seems like he doesn't belong there. Bruce Langley. That is. Well, I would argue that one of the best or biggest things you can do with this adaptation is you can really do visual cues and kind of play in to who they are as gods and kind of, you know, do fun little things and with him, it's like he is the shining example of wasted opportunity, in my opinion, because there's nothing that says technology about him. Yeah. Now, anyway, on a more uh, opposite note, remember how I said that Shadow is kind of like a cipher in the book? Like he has a personality, but it's not really all that important. He spends most of his time reacting passively to shit in the book because we're, as the reader, reacting passively to shit. Well, if you have that character in a show, They'll kind of suck. So what they did with Ricky Whittle, who plays Shadow Moon, is gave him much a much more of an attitude. So in the show, he's a lot more adversarial and aggressive, and it works very well for me because basically you've got a character who recognizes that he's he's stepped into a world that, unlike his own. Shit keeps getting thrown at him that he does not prepared for, but instead of shying away from it, he's fed up with it and I, I like that characterization of shadow yeah it is a nice touch the one thing that's kind of bugging me and you know again talking second season is he's still kind of got this oh what's going on i don't i don't understand it's like come on man you saw mr wednesday call down lightning which i kind of have questions about you saw easter you know blight the ground you're dealing with gods it's it's okay you can admit that to yourself now in all fairness, I feel like that is a layover from his book characterization where even pretty late into the book, he was still behaving that way again because he's meant to be a 
like a passive kind of cipher for us. Like he doesn't really start getting savvy until like the last six, like seven or eight chapters, really. I guess. So let's kind of circle back around to what is a big change from the book, but a positive change. And that's the expansion of both Laura and Mad Sweeney. You know what's funny about that? So Laura, at first, I was very upset about what they did with Laura. Like I was yeah, pissed. Yeah, that was. But the the more I thought about it, though, I com- I completely 180'd. Because like at first, the show seems like it's doing a real character assassination. But the thing is, in the book, she's very much a a manic pixie dream girl, but a dead one. So yeah, and in like the worst case, that she's mostly there to serve as this kind of you know tether for shadow but she's not really a character in her own right the show like a d plot that's kind of going on uh, with everything else yeah the show makes her a character now that character is asshole but she still is an actual person living and breathing with her own motivations and her own desires and it actually once i got over my initial like distaste i realize i think that's a better decision similar thing to mad sweeney mad sweeney who for anyone who doesn't know is the king of the leprechauns shows up in the book is awesome and then dies but in he's not given much to do which is kind of a bummer in the show they were like this character is awesome so let's not kill him let's pair him up with laura and just watch that happen and it makes for at least two of what are my favorite episodes of season one, which one is happening in present time where they're just driving and basically dealing with each other. And two is that story that Ulrich mentioned about an Irish immigrant coming to the States. Well, in the show, they have the actress who played Laura play that Irish immigrant and Mad Sweeney was the God that Irish immigrant brought over. So it creates this interest. It's a really good episode. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, it really is. I was kind of put off by the fact that they just cast the same actors, but I got past that pretty quick. I think one of the other best parts of this is Laura is Shadow's wife who is dead. We mentioned she died pretty much like the day he got out of prison. Um, but what they do is Mad Sweeney messes up and accidentally gives Shadow his luck in the form of a gold coin, which resurrects Laura. And... That means that Mad Sweeney just keeps having terrible luck at every opportunity. And it's it's hilarious. This is all early book, early season, so don't worry about that being a spoiler. It's not even really touched upon that much in the book. Like, it's still kind of vague. In the book, it's still vague as to what happened. In the TV show, they're like, let's just make it his luck so we can have him get hurt a lot and have bad stuff happen to him. Yeah, and it makes it for good comedy. Especially because Laura basically being a zombie means she has zombie strength. So, and Mad Sweeney is just the ultimate antagonist. Like he's just an asshole to everybody all the time. And the actor is doing a great job because he's just kind of this annoying asshole, but he's the likable kind of asshole. Now, there are two more things because we've been going for a while and I want to make sure I get this out there. There are two more things I think are really important. So the book and the show do not shy away from sex. Like, like real sex. They don't just allude to it. He, he goes to great lengths to describe stuff that happens. It's not like, like I'm reading game of Thrones right now. And when game of Thrones tries to do it, for some reason, George R. R. Martin's writing really puts me off. It comes off gross and crude and doesn't work, but Gaiman's writing makes it feel appropriate. Like it can be alluring and 
it's very powerful scenes. I don't know. His writing works well for it. But Gaiman's the sex stuff just happens. As see the aforementioned taxi cab driver and the well, that's, utter I mean, shock. The first time I read that one, not knowing yeah, what's happening. Well, that's why I want to get. So the the two there are two sequences in particular that are very jarring, and if you're not prepared for them, th- especially in the show, they could really, really shock you. The first one, uh, which involves a character named Bilquis who is basically a sex goddess. And I don't know. If, I think she is. There's like no maybe about it. <laughs> well, I think she's a goddess of more things than that, but sex is the primary method through which she is worshipped. So point is though, she's found a way to survive in the modern day, one worshiper at a time. And that's all I want to say about that because it is, fucking fascinating it was fascinating to read it and i was like how literally when i read that and then found out they were going to make a adaptation one of my first thoughts was how the fuck are they going to adapt that scene because i don't i don't know how you do that i love it because in the press leading up to they said yeah we're we're doing that part from the book and everyone's like really i said yeah and then it happened i was like oh that was as disturbing there as it was in the book it's disturbing but it's also up until it gets disturbing, it is very sexy. Like it works very well. And then suddenly it turns into something else, but you could also understand how it got to that point, if that makes any sense. But it's, it's just fascinating. Now the cab driver, which Ulrich has mentioned a couple of times, that's fascinating for a different set of reasons because the cab driver, I will, I'm going to spoil this entirely because this scene is, is brilliant, but I want to prepare some fans who definitely won't be prepared for this. Um, the cab driver is from is from a Middle Eastern country, and that's part of the point is that that stereotype is dumb. But he gets a person in the he's a fair that turns out to be a jinn, not a genie. They actually talk about how jinns don't grant wishes, and he fucking hates that stereotype. But like an actual a fire spirit, a Middle Eastern mythology fire spirit. And you can see it in his eyes, like his eyes are fire. He wears sunglasses to cover them. But uh, the cab driver and him talk about how hard it is to be so far from their native lands. And they bond over it. They bond so much that when uh, they get to the djinn's like, place, essentially, or maybe it was the cab driver. The point is, they go up to a hotel room together. And then the scene that follows is a sex scene, since we established what we're talking about that both in the because like i'm straight like i'm a hundred percent straight i enjoy i love my girlfriend but the scene that happens in the book and the show is just really effective like in the show they use these visual markers of like fire and they're transported to like a desert around them but they're like see through like the stars as they're doing the act which is completely and fully on screen and then he literally like fills the cab driver with fire it's 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 graphic yeah it's very graphic but it's very gorgeous in a very artistic way you know it's just very surprising (laughs) yeah i remember the first time i read that that caught me totally off guard and i have made a point of every time i'm giving this book to someone if i know i think i told you said when you get to the cab driver you know chapter be prepared. And everyone's like, the cab driver? What does that mean? And then they get there and like, oh. And some people I've done, like, they, I just skipped it. I didn't want to know what was going on. Like, it's like, eh, that's perfectly fine. 
I think it's important, uh, and the show actually uh, has made the cab driver character a recurring character, kind of like how I'm curious to see Matt where that's going to go. Yeah, but I think it's an interesting choice because again, his his chapter was one of the more um, I'm going to say powerful ones because it was a comment on um, current day immigrants in current day society, and the show got to is playing around with it even more, and I I really enjoy that so. So since we're getting near the end of the episode, let's talk about just the first episode of the second season and what we're expecting from season two. Well, I haven't seen the first episode yet. I didn't know it was out, so. Oh, you were supposed to watch the first. That's why we were doing. Sorry, I I didn't know. (laughs) I'll talk about it real quick. Uh, Episode two is the house on the rock where we get the gods in their forms. You know, their godly forms, which is really cool. Um. And it's Mr. Wednesday's rallying speech, war cry, we need to get out there and fight them. And then it ends very much in the book in that there is a raid on the restaurant where the gods are and Shadow gets captured again. That's pretty much it. And I, it was a good, I mean, it looked good. I know there's been a bunch of tweaks between the seasons because Neil Gaiman was not happy with how the first season went down. But to me, it's weird because you already did the Shadow gets captured by the other side part last season so i don't know why they're repeating it for this season i don't know it it's, makes it three times now he's been captured so yeah um as for what i'm hoping for season two i think they're gonna kind of keep more to the book because i think that's what bugged the game in a bit i don't know that's what bugged me um i think we're gonna get to see some really cool stuff i think we're gonna see a lot more gods like that definitely seems to be the thing they're going is more gods by the way and i'm really if there's any pantheon that i didn't know jack about that this book made me way more interested in it's the slavic pantheon oh hell yeah yeah basically ancient like russian kind of people but the you might have heard the name chernabog which is basically the name of the devil from fantasia but the actual chernabog was a god of winter who people sacrificed people to by hitting them in the head with hammers so chernabog likes blood and hammers and it's he's wonderful he's a wonderful character who goes on these long speeches about how they used to you know kill cows with a hammer to the head he's great he's great <laughs> He's awesome in the show. Uh, Cloris uh, Leachman's in the show. You know, she's always fun. Um, I think I'm I'm liking season two more already. I'm really curious to see where they go. Um, since Axel hasn't seen it, I won't go too much into it. There are things from season one they're leaning a bit more into, like you don't necessarily know the loyalty of all the gods, which is a nice touch. Uh, I'm looking forward to it overall. And I really am curious. I'm looking forward to when uh, Shadow cools his heels in uh, Lakeside, which is this little mini town that should have been a boring part of the book, but is honestly some of my favorite because the characters are so cool. Yeah, well, that's that part I was talking about before where it's like him and the idyllic. I've been waiting to see that show up in the show. I that's If, if you're going to ask me, even though I hadn't seen the first episodes, if the thing I was looking forward to most was I want to see how that town, I want to see it show up. It's just a fun part. It's like a whole nother part of the book. And I'm, I was bummed every time I had to leave that part, which is interesting. So I'm curious to see how they're going to handle that over. Yep. I mean, I'm looking forward to it. I, like I said, I was, I, uh, I was a little grumpy with the last few episodes, season one, but I still enjoyed it. And overall, I thought I had a good time with it as a series. I thought it was a good adaptation. So I'm, Looking forward to seeing more. So, yeah, uh, go read the book if you haven't read it already. 
Uh, watch the first season. It gets a bit messy near the end, but it's still worth watching. And watch season two. It's on Stars, and new episodes come out every Sunday. All right, you want to take us into our suggestions of the week? Yeah, I'm going to keep it on point by uh, referencing a or suggesting another Neil Gaiman book, uh, Neil Gaiman's The Graveyard Book. Now, this is definitely one you can read with your kids, younger family members, what have you, because this is one that he wrote as a quote-unquote children's book. But for those of you that read Coraline, you know that Neil Gaiman's understanding of what children's books are tends to skew a bit to the dark and macabre. Um... Basically, the graveyard book is—it's not—it's kind of sort of a collection of short stories. I mean, there's each chapter is a short story, but it's all about this kid whose parents' whole family is murdered except for him, and he escapes to a graveyard as an infant, and he's raised by the ghosts that live there. And each little story takes place in a different point during his life where he, you know, learns some lesson, he gets some cool things in the Neil Gaiman-esque style. And the final chapter, the final two chapters, are really edge of your seats, wait, what happens next books? It's a short read, and it's an awesome book, especially if, like, you have young ones at home, or you kind of want to try out Neil Gaiman, but you don't want the real heavy stuff, start with this. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, if you want something that is very similar in tone to American Gods, but is a lot more lighthearted, I would say, and less on world building and more on comedy. I'm recommending a book that I read right after I read American Gods, which is Good Omens, which is also getting a adaptation here soon. So I'm looking forward to it. It looks awesome just the trailers alone. Yeah, so for anyone who doesn't know, Good Omens was co-written by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett. Terry Pratchett is probably best known for the Discworld uh, series, which is also amazing. But Good Omens is a story that is best described as a satirical takedown of the Christian apocalypse. But it's done so in a really fun fiction, where you've got a demon and an angel who were if not the first demon angel, very, very, very old. They've been involved in Earth since the Garden of Eden. In fact, the demon used to be called Crawley. It was literally the snake. It wasn't the devil. It was this demon. Uh, and the like angel that instructed Adam and Eve not to eat the tree was this angel, right? Uh, whose name is Az... I can never pronounce this. It's Azaraphael? Azaraphael, something like that. But Azrael. Well, no, there's a PH in there. As oh, yeah. So, anyway, point is that Crowley became Crowley, and the two of them have been frenemies for about 5,000 years, where uh, as Azurafail basically likes to keep to himself. He likes books. He keeps a little you know, library. Crowley loves finding new ways of corrupting people in really interesting ways. Like the book at one point goes to great lengths to describe how he got a intersection on a, a freeway to be shaped like a certain demonic symbol so that every time someone drives through it, it you know generates evil energy, really fascinating stuff. Anyway. So the story is about the apocalypse is coming and this demon and this angel realize they don't want the apocalypse to happen because they like their lives on earth. So they try to work together to stop the apocalypse. Meanwhile, the Antichrist is raised not knowing he's the Antichrist, just like a regular kid. 
and starts getting crazy powers with his friends. The four horsemen show up and they're doing, you know, crazy shit in really interesting ways. And that's the book. It's funny. It's really interesting. And the show has David Tennant playing Crowley, which is awesome. It also has a, I'm looking at the cast list right now. I didn't know this. It has Brian Cox playing death, which is goddamn perfect. I think maybe that's not interesting. Yeah. It has Benedict Cumberbatch as Satan. Oh, I'm looking forward I to I heard that. that. And I was like, all right, no, this is definitely a, another great introduction to Gaiman in that you can probably read it to all ages. And it has uh Gaiman's one of his signatures. He doesn't do it in a lot of his books, but he has hilarious little, you know, footnotes. And this book is chock full of them. I will give away one scene. Like normally, it, you know, giving away a joke, it, you know, really kills the joke. But just just one. I just got to take one, which is there's a moment halfway through the book where the four horsemen are assembling. Now, the four horsemen are used to be death, pl- uh, famine, plague, and war. But plague retired in the 1930s, muttering something about penicillin, and got replaced by pollution. Anyway. Which all right there is a great joke alone. But the joke I want to share is that they're meeting at this bar, and before any of them show up, it describes that there's a one of those machines in the back. It's like a trivia machine, like a, and there's a biker there with a, a helmet on, so no one can see his face, and he's doing the trivia machine, surrounded by all his biker friends who are like cheering him on, like yeah, yeah, you know, C. The answer is C. It's uh, one of those like you want to be a millionaire kind of things, and the 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 categories are like. Famous celebrities, moments of history, like pop culture, sports trivia, or something like that, right? And then war comes in, and one of the the categories changes to war. And then plague or pollution comes in, one changes to pollution. Famine comes in, one changes. So now you've got, you know, pollution, famine, uh, war, and famous celebrities. And the question that that's up is, what year did Elvis Presley die? And the guy's refusing to answer. And all the friends around him are like, the answer is D, pick D. And after a few minutes, the, the guy goes, I don't care what the machine says. I never touched him. Yeah. And that joke comes back around later in the book, which is kind of fun little tieback because fun fact, Neil Gaiman used to write joke articles for the National Enquirer. And one of them were Elvis related stories. Anyway, so that's the kind of like little bits of humor, and I'm really looking forward to seeing the show. It, uh, I the show seems to focus a lot more heavily on the demon and the angel, and less on the the kids and the the horsemen. But I am looking forward to it. And the book, which is my actual recommendation, is a shorter read. I think it's like half the length. American Gods. It's lighter in tone. It's a good, light, fun read. I think. Yeah. Definitely. All right. Well, thank you for listening. Be sure to like, share, subscribe, do all the things because, well, we need you people, you guys, our fans to share this because every time you share it, that's more eyes on this podcast than we can possibly generate ourselves. And that's ultimately what we need is more eyes. And, you know, normally I'm supposed to promote SoundCloud right now because we still get a lot of viewers on YouTube. And, yes, if you're viewing us on YouTube, then you can also view us on SoundCloud because that's, you know, you could download and stuff like that. Oh, same speech I've heard. But also I was thinking, I've had a few friends of mine say, like, hey, man, why aren't you on this, you know, site or this site? So if there is – if you're, like, listening to us on SoundCloud or YouTube because – you know, you're aware of us or you're, you're friends with us or whatever. And there's a specific platform that you would prefer us to be on as well. 
let us know because we're looking to branch out and we'd like to know what platforms you guys actually use. Like what would be easier for you? All right. As always, this has been Lord Commander Ulrich. And his shield brother, Axel Wright. Be sure to tune in next time. And as always, stay honorable.